Turn with me this morning again to the book of Philippians. And we'll continue our studies there in chapter 1. I trust the Lord is beginning to open up this um, epistle of Paul to the Philippian church to you. I, I'm receiving a tremendous blessing myself um, just um, studying again the particular epistle here. So we'll just continue on as the Lord gives us help and enablement and see how far we get. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read again from verse 1 and we'll read down to verse 12. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bones and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my griefs. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 12. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It reads as follows, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And my theme today is simply entitled, The Characteristics of the True Grace of God. Now remember these words were penned by the Apostle Paul from his prison cell in Rome. From the prison cell he faces an unjust trial. Nero, remember, is on the throne. He faces certain execution and death. And this was a terrible and harrowing experience. Many of his former friends have forsaken him. They, they want nothing to do with him. They don't want to be associated with him. Maybe this was out of fear. Or maybe it was just out of sheer neglect because of the distance or both, but from a human perspective, Paul's Christian ministry is over. 
He is no longer free to go where the Spirit of God leads him to preach. He can't go into towns and villages and cities. In jail, there seems to be so little to encourage him. And one day, however, he's informed that he has a visitor. And the visitor is by the name of Epaphroditus. The church at Philippi, a church that he had helped found under God some nine or ten years earlier, had decided to send one of their members with some gifts of encouragement to the man of God. This was all about helping to strengthen Paul as he faced this unjust trial and certain execution. Now, you need to know something about Epaphroditus. On route to Rome, he took ill. And he almost died and lost his life. Amazingly, by the grace of God, he recovered. And he eventually he did visit Paul. And on Epaphroditus' return home, the Apostle Paul had wrote this letter, put it into the hand of Epaphroditus, and he told Epaphroditus, this will help encourage the church at Philippi. So here we have in the opening verses, Paul is thanking God for every remembrance of them. He is also thankful for their fellowship in the gospel. He is thankful that they have continued steadfast in the gospel and remained true to Christ despite living in a very hard, ungodly place. For Philippi was a hard, ungodly place. Paul is confident, as we learned last week, about the state of their spirituality. He is rejoicing in their spiritual progress and maturity in the Christian life. In fact, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, this work in their souls was God's work. And because it was God's work, it was a good work. In fact, we could even say it was a great work. It was a work that was divine because it has God at its origin. It was a work that was definite. Paul is thinking of the day that they became believers. Salvation, remember, is not something a person grows into. Salvation is something that a person receives in a particular given moment of time. You can't say, oh, I've always been a Christian, or I was born into a Christian home or a Christian land. Paul dispenses with that notion. He talks about from the first day. That was the day they became a true Christian, the the day of the new birth, the day of their conversion. And he says that was a, a, a good work, a great work, because it was God's work. Remember what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you see it through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. True salvation is all of God. It's all of his grace. And the act of regeneration has nothing to do with man. Man has no part in it. Man remembers a, a, like a dead corpse spiritually. He has no life. And God comes to that man and infuses life in the soul. And the man is made alive a to God unconscious. Glory to God, it's not only a divine work and a definite work, it's a developing work. We're not saved by good works. But you know the strange thing? We're actually not saved without them. The good works are the fruit, the evidences, the characteristics of what God has worked in. The word perform here in verse 6 means to finish and complete. 
the work that God has begun in the soul, God will bring to completion. True salvation also includes the progress or principle of sanctification. The child of God learns he's enabled to die unto self and live more and more unto God. That is to live a, a holy life unto the Lord. He lives to please his master. He, he, he lives to please Christ. It's also a very definitive work, this work of salvation, for it's until the day of Jesus Christ. That, that, that means until the day of Christ's return. And a believer, of course, a true believer, will aspire and desire to be more and more like Christ. And on that day, the day when Christ returns, the battles and the struggles with sin will be over, and in that day he'll be finally and forever and fully sanctified, and not only will he be with Christ, but he'll be like Christ. Now Paul has all this in his mind. And here he is rejoicing in his heart. The day that he ever set foot in Macedonia, the day he ever came into Philippi and preached the gospel, he recalls the real reason that he and the Philippine people got off. It wasn't a personality thing. It wasn't that they just liked each other from the day one. It wasn't that they said, well, you know, Paul's a, a, an affable sort of fella and he's funny and, well, he, he can make you laugh and he's a good preacher. And the, the, the woman folk didn't say, well, he, well he's good looking. And, and Paul didn't say, well, the people in Philippi are, are good looking also. It wasn't that Paul shared just a common interest with these people. These people didn't say, well, well Paul's educated. We, we would like to identify with him. Or, or Paul was rich, so they befriended him. No, here's the reason that they headed off. Here's the reason that they had so much fellowship one with another. They had experienced God's great salvation, this divine work, this definite work, this developing work. This was going on in their souls. All of them were really partakers of the grace of God. It's not what he says in verse 7, ye all are partakers of my grace. All that they had, all that they did, was by the grace of God. They were saved by grace. They were sanctified by grace. They were serving by grace. They, 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 they stood by grace. They, they, they spoke by grace. They were supplied by the grace of God. And the key to the bond of fellowship between them, the key to the bond between pastor and people, was the experience of the grace of God. And if you look very carefully at verses 7 and 8, I want you to notice that Paul has high thoughts of them. The word even, as it is meet for me to think this of you all, the word even links us back to verse 6. The word meet here means right and proper. And then he adds this, because I have you in my heart. Paul has righteous, lovely thoughts of these believers. He thinks the same thing of them all. He's not bitter against any of them. He thinks... Equally, if the men, the women, the young people and the children, he treats them all the same way. Why? And here's the answer. Because they'd all experienced the true grace of God. A work of salvation had begun in their soul. Paul's not exaggerating here. He's not using hyperbole here. He's not speaking in a vain sort of way or hope. Let me ask this morning, and maybe I should start it with this question. 
What is the evidence of the true grace of God in the soul? How do you know a person is genuinely and truly saved? What are the main characteristics of the grace of God in the life? If someone says, I've experienced the grace of God in salvation, I've had a divine work in the soul, and, and that's a definite work. I, I know when it started, there was a day when I received Christ, and that work is developing. I, I'm, I'm living to please the Lord. I, I, I have a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness, and I look forward to that day of Jesus' return when I'll be with him and like him. What are the main characteristics then of people that have that? experience three little things we should have four but we'll just do with three today the love for the saviour they shared Paul says in verse 7 because I have you in my heart well, what does that mean I hold you in my heart in other words I hold you in the highest esteem Paul is revealing his love for the saints you see, the true grace of God produces a mutual love among the people of God. But Paul has a deep yearning for them. He genuinely loves them in Jesus Christ. Now they felt the very same way about Paul. Literally, we could say, Paul could say to them, I have you on my heart. And they in return could say to Paul, Paul, we have you in our heart. See, this was a true spiritual affection for one another. Paul's not pretending. Paul's not putting on a show. He's not writing just fancy words. He truly held them in his heart. And that was true of all the saints. Not, not just the nice ones. Not just the lovable ones. Not just the, the obedient ones and the good ones. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. In verse 7, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, inasmuch I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Notice the double all in verse 7. And verse 8, For God is my record, how great they I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? In the space of five verses, Paul is using the word all eight times. That's, that's easy to miss. And that's not just a, a relative term. I believe Paul is being very emphatic here. The force of it. The elders in the church. The deacons in the church. The women in the church. Even though two women had fallen out in the church. And he has to write to them. And the men in the church. The young people. The, the, the children. Paul is thinking of them all. And he says, I have you in my heart. Now isn't that amazing? There's a time when Paul would not have been able to say that. Remember the days before he was converted? He was a persecutor of the church and the people of God. He was the arch enemy of Jesus Christ. He orchestrated the death of Stephen. He held the coats of the men that stoned him to death. He, he nodded. He spearheaded a campaign to create havoc in the church. He, he was like a mad bull. People were imprisoned. People had their possessions confiscated. Others were put to death. And now, where is he? He himself is in a prison cell. Why is he there? He's there for the sake of Jesus Christ 
and the gospel. And he's telling the church at Philippi, these Christians, I have you in my heart. You see, he's a new man. He's a changed man. He's experienced the power of the grace of God. He's got a new heart. Could I tell you something else? He's fulfilling the command of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 13? Verse 34, listen to these words. You've heard of the Ten Commandments, young people. Well, this is like the Eleventh Commandment. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. If ye have the badge of the new birth, and if you have the badge and the mark of the blood of Christ upon you, then you'll have another mark. And it will be a love for the people of God. That's the evidence of true salvation. Listen to what um, the Apostle John in the Isle of Patmos was writing. He said this in 1 John chapter 3 and in the verse uh, 14. That this is one of the evidences. He says, we know... That we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You see, the true grace of God produces a true love. A love for the Savior first and foremost. I love Jesus. Hallelujah. A love for the saints of God. All of them irrespective. A love for the scriptures of truth. The psalmist could say, oh, how I love thy law. A love for the sanctuary. A love for the Sabbath day. It's held in high regard. This is the Lord's day. I, 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 I won't miss the house of God. I, I go to hear the word of God and offer my worship to the Lord. And a love for the souls of men. There's a passion for souls. Didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, The love of Christ constraineth me. From the day he gets saved, he was filled with the love of Christ. And if we love the Saviour, we will love the saints of God. And one of the evidences that we're born again, Paul says, is I have you in my heart. And they could reply, the whole church, we have you in our heart, Paul. There's a mutual love. He loved them. And they loved him. And remember the fruit of the Spirit, if they're born of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. They were marked by love. Love to the Saviour, love to the saints, love to the Scriptures, love to the Sabbath, love to the sanctuary, love to the souls of men. And I want to ask this morning, are we marked by that kind of love? That's a challenge. I've asked myself, Lord, in my heart, have I that type of love? You see, you'll never love the Saviour. You'll certainly not love the scriptures of truth. You'll not love the saints of God. You'll not love the sanctuary, the house of God, the way you ought. And you'll certainly not love the Sabbath or love souls. Until you're born again of the Holy Spirit. Until the Spirit does a regenerating work in your soul. And when he does, 
the love of God will be shed abroad in your heart. And, and the branches of the love of God, a real genuine love, will not only be implanted, but it will be imparted to you. Of course, you'll never be perfect. You'll never love God perfectly. Does the Bible tell us that you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength? And thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. That's the summary of the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, is summarised. Love God and love our fellow man. But we'll never love God perfectly. We'll never love our fellow man perfectly. We'll struggle with inward dwelling sin. We'll struggle with trials and temptations. We'll, We'll struggle with darkness. But the love will be there. And that love will be active. And that love will be strong. And that love will be real and genuine. Why did he write and put the letter into the hand of Epaphroditus? He wrote because he had them in his heart. He wrote because he, he loved them. And you, you'll read this letter. Please read it at a sitting. Drink, get a cup of coffee and read through it. True love doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Paul dealt with sin in this particular church. He wrote because of Christ and what the grace of God has done in his soul and what the grace of God did in the lives of the people in Philippi. Their love for the Saviour they shared. Notice secondly and quickly here the loyalty for the Saviour they showed. He says, if you look at the text, he says, Inasmuch as both in my bonds, that's to do with his imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Now remember Paul's in prison. And he's thinking in prison of the need to be loyal to the gospel and loyal to God. And then he remembers the people in Philippi They're not ashamed of my bonds and my imprisonment. And they are loyal to the same gospel that I have. They are loyal to God. The people in Philippi were not ashamed of Paul in prison. They didn't turn their back on him. They didn't turn away from him. They didn't say, oh, it's a long distance away from Philippi to Rome. We'll not bother with Paul. Maybe if we do, we'll we'll perhaps get into trouble with the Roman authorities. Maybe some were saying, don't identify with a man like that. That man, Paul, he's a troublemaker. He's an upstart. But these people refuse to accept that notion or entertain that thought in their mind. They were loyal to Paul because Paul was loyal to the gospel. And because he was loyal to the gospel, even though there was a stigma about his bonds and imprisonment, they were not ashamed of that imprisonment. You see, Paul took every opportunity, even in prison, to defend the gospel, to confirm the gospel message. We could think about Paul facing King Agrippa. We could think about him uh, um, facing Festus and, and other Roman governors. And every opportunity. What does he say in this passage of scripture here? We read in the verse 17, he says... <coughs> I am set for the defense of the gospel. And that's a tremendous statement. The gospel was an offense to many. 
The gospel's a stumbling block to many in the Grecian and the Roman world. And yet, Paul says, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. See, a preacher's duty is always to defend and confirm the gospel. And he keeps going, despite being at times weary, and despite being weak. But he's not weary and weak because of the work of the gospel. He keeps going by the grace of God in the gospel. He knows he has nobility in his own strength. He looks to the Lord for help. The men and people of Philippi had the same sense of loyalty to God in the gospel. Let me tell you some things this morning. You've heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, the, the great Baptist preacher in England. He was the preacher in the Park Street um, Baptist Tabernacle. He was also the preacher there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And he was preaching to, to 5,000. And he would often say to his own congregation, stay away, let others come. You, you imagine me getting up next Sunday and say, please don't come to church on Sunday. Stay at home and pray. Because uh, there's so many wants to get in here uh, and uh, we can't get them all in. Well, that's what it was like. And of course, that would be lovely if it would happen uh, to the glory of God. But, but Spurgeon wanted others to hear the gospel. And there come a time when Spurgeon, because he, he was set for the defense of the gospel, and wanted to confirm the gospel to the unsaved. He took a very strong stand against what is called the downgrade controversy in the Baptist Union of England. It became riddled, sadly, with false teaching and a spirit of worldliness. And Spurgeon called for separation. And not everybody was with him. There was many against him. Not all were loyal to the minister of the gospel. And there was very few that took the same stand. And yet, amazingly, in Philippi, because we've already seen Paul using the word all, in Philippi, this church to a man, to a woman, to a young person stood with Paul and weren't ashamed of his bonds and weren't ashamed of the gospel. And I want to say this morning, and I love you in the Lord, but this is rare in the modern Christian church. This is rare in Christianity today. Thousands, far too many, are uncommitted and unreliable. And are fickle when it comes to the things of God. And attendance to the things of God. And when it comes to the gospel. How many are influenced and affected by false teaching? How many are influenced and affected by a spirit of worldliness? You, you, you think of today the, the attacks on the word of God. The Bible is not true. It's not infallible, inerrant. It's not authoritative or sufficient. Far removed from Reformation 500. Think of the, the attack, for example, in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Those books are not historical. They're, they're, they're only allegorical. The story of Adam and Eve. That's nonsense. And this is what we hear, even in some churches. They don't believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour creation by God. They, they argue against it. They argue against the necessity of the new birth. They, they tell us that's not important. And they've replaced the new birth with a form of baptismal regeneration. Let's, let's baptize everybody, the babies and the young people and everybody else. 
You see, no necessity for the preaching of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When it comes to the person and work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his eternal sonship, his virgin birth, these are all denied. You see, we live now in a modern world. Not, not, not the world of Paul. Not the world of Martin Luther. But the modern world. And we're told because there's been a mass rejection of the Bible that the Bible is not uh, the word of God. Therefore, hell is not real. Heaven doesn't exist. Death is the end of all life. There is no God. There's big changes afoot. And not everyone is loyal to the gospel. And in the age in which we live, there's less loyalty to the gospel and the word of God. Paul says, This church in Philippi, they all kept faith with me and they stood where the gospel stands. Let me quote a hundred years ago from William Booth. William Booth said, the chief danger facing the common century, and he was talking about the 19th century coming into the 20th century, we'll have religion without the Holy Ghost. We'll have a Christianity without Christ. We'll have salvation without regeneration, faith without repentance, politics without God. It's almost like prophetic. It was as if he was speaking of our day. We live in a day when people want a Bible without Genesis chapters 1 to 3 because they don't want to admit there's a creator God to whom they're dependable and accountable. A Bible without the cross. To take out the blood atonement. They, they don't want well, us an offence to them. They, they, they want a Christianity uh, without Christ being the eternal Son of God, born of the Virgin. They want a Bible without hell. They want a Bible without any power. We're living in the last days. We'll admit that. We, we'll admit there's a, a departure and a falling away from the faith. And in the last days, one of the characteristics will be there's not the same level of faithfulness and loyalty to the gospel. They weren't loyal to Paul. They weren't loyal to personalities. They weren't loyal to principles. They were loyal to the gospel. And they showed that in identifying with Paul in his bonds in imprisonment. And I say this morning, this is something we should examine our hearts on. And we should endeavor and strive by the grace and help of God to be loyal to the gospel. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate your faithfulness in coming to church. I appreciate that you you want to listen to the word of God. And why do you do that? Week in and week out. It's not just something to do. It's not just getting out of bed and saying, I've got to go to church on Sunday. Mr. McLaughlin, if I don't call me, be on the phone. Where are you? You come out of loyalty to the gospel. Loyalty to God. And it flows from your love. One final thing. The longing for the Saviour. They spoke of. Remember, they've already experienced the true grace of God. Paul had written to them and said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. Remember what we said when we dealt with that verse? Grace stood first. They couldn't have peace with God apart from experiencing the grace of God. They have been saved by grace. And they're suffering by grace. And they're being supplied and sustained by grace. And they're standing for God in the gospel by grace. And then Paul adds, look at verse, verse 8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all 
in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It is calling God to be a witness. You see, he, he missed them, even though he's in prison. Even though it's maybe nine or ten years since he's seen them. He missed their company. He missed their, their conversation. He, he missed their, their, their Christ-likeness. This is very strong language here. He's not being flippant. He's not being lighthearted. I believe he means what he says. Paul knows that Christ's love is being channeled through him towards these people. And he longs for them just as Christ would long for them. The word bowels means the seat of affection. In other words, it's a very strong love. He longs that they'll experience God's blessing. He longs that they'll be abounding more and more in love. He longs that they'll know more of the grace of God. He, he longs they'll be more like Christ. And he knows they face difficult circumstances. And he knows they're in the midst of trials. And dark days have come. Philippi remembers an ungodly place for the gospel. But Paul has a longing in his heart that they'll have the grace of God for every situation and the grace of God for every need. Do you know you need grace to live? Live for God, not in your own strength or power, whatever you face. And we all face difficult things. And some families are experiencing more than others. And our hearts go out to them. And we pray that they'll get the grace of God. Remember God says, my grace is sufficient for you. You also need grace to die. I think of those words that was in the newsletter about Mrs. Gorman from our Armagh congregation. On the day of her funeral, it was in the newsletter written by a Roman Catholic man. Prepared for eternity. I've been up Mary Curry with Olive every day, sometimes twice in the day. And that's all of sentiment. I'm prepared for eternity. I'm ready for heaven, Mr. McLaughlin. And the Lord's coming soon to take me home. Such confidence. No fear. A sweetness there, a peace there. How is that possible? The answer is the grace of God. Do you know anything of that? This was the longing that they shared with Paul. That they would know more of the grace of God. May the Lord help us to show our love, to show our loyalty, and to show our longing for more of the grace of God. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to us.